0: Over the uh, last few weeks, we've seen things come together nicely for David. David, who had to wait uh, so many years and to go through so many trials before God's promise to him of becoming king could come to fruition. But now, finally, he is king. And last week, we read about how King David brought the Ark of the Covenant, that gold box which was the focus of Israelite worship, the, the place where God promised to be found under the covenant um, with Moses. Uh, last week we read about how King David brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, the new capital city of a newly united nation. Well, David is now in his prime, at the height of his strength. The Philistinian threat has been answered, the Jebusites are gone, the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem, David's royal palace is built. Thanks to Hram, king of Tyre, who provided as a gift the cedar wood, the carpenters, and the stonemasons. And David has had time to settle in and get comfortable. Well, today's text is straightforward as to what happens. David decides to build a house, that is a temple, for God. God intervenes by saying that no, rather he is going to build a house or a dynasty, a royal line, for David and then thirdly David responds in prayer so there are two actually there are two significant things that we should talk about two significant things to consider firstly we should consider the significance of what God is doing for David and secondly we should consider the significance of what David is not doing for God So let's look at the first one of those things first. God will build a house for David, meaning a royal lineage. And the promise is made in the paragraph that begins halfway through verse 11 and finishes at verse 16. Uh, The the promise is made at the start of the paragraph and then it's it's, uh, repeated again at the end of the paragraph. So verse 11b, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And again, at the end of the paragraph, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. What this means is that the kingship cannot and will not ever be taken away from the line of David. The house of David will always be the royal household. And seeing as, uh, you know, we've had a weekend of royalty stuff, haven't we? I mean, what's the obsession of royalty? Royals are obsessed with royal succession. And given that's the royal obsession, it's an extraordinary, absolutely astonishing promise to make to King David. Um, Saul, in contrast, I mean, Saul being the previous king of Israel, Saul lost the kingship actually in a two-stage process. Firstly, when he disobeyed the law of Moses and took upon himself the privilege of offering sacrifices, God told him through the prophet Samuel that his kingship would not last. He would be the first and last king to come from the tribe of Benjamin. No king would come from his descendants. He'd lost that. Secondly, later, when he disobeyed the command of God through the prophet Samuel to destroy the Amalekites, he was rejected completely as king. But now, rather, in contrast for David, every generation will have a Messiah king from his line. In other words, each generation will have a king from the line of David. That is God's choice for king. Now, given that human beings are sinful and limited and we all fall short, how is this going to work? Well, actually, the answer is given to us. And it's given to us in the middle of the paragraph because it is of supreme importance. Verse 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, in, in what way... This is the $64 million question. In what way will God be father to the Messiah King and the Messiah King's son to God? Well, the text supplies the answer. It says, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Now, our generation tends to get very nervous about punishment and that word punishment, and probably with very good reason. The idea of a God who punishes people can frighten people, especially those who create God in their own image. So let's have a think about it. Um, I, I, this morning, for this reason, I would like to make a distinction between punishment on the one hand and discipline on the other. Punishment then, let's define that as inflicting a penalty, sanction, or retribution in response to wrongdoing as an expression of someone's anger. Discipline, in contrast, would mean the inflicting of a penalty, sanction, or retribution in response to wrongdoing as an expression of someone's love. The measure designed to correct the person's behavior for the preservation of their welfare. Now, I make this distinction between punishment and discipline because I think that's the distinction the narrator may be making because he doesn't use the usual Hebrew word for punishment in this text. The normal way of saying punishment in Hebrew is literally visiting upon or appointing iniquity. In other words, God punishes evil with evil. That's because God gives people what they want. Uh, For example, we read in the second commandment of the Ten Commandments that God punishes, that is to say, he visits or appoints iniquity to the third or fourth generation of the children who hate him. In other words, when people hate and reject God and choose evil, God gives them what they want. But the evil is resident in their line to the third or fourth generation. That's not what the narrator is saying here. The the narrator, um, the word translated punish in verse 14 is a different word, and the word means to decide, to adjudge, to make a judgment, to discipline, rebuke, chasten. It's a different sentiment. What we get then, if you'll pardon my own wooden and clumsy translation, what we get then in the Hebrew is something a little bit like this. I myself will be to him as father, and he will be to me as son. That is... In his iniquity, I will discipline him by the rod of man and by the stripes of the sons of Adam. That that this discipline is an expression of God's love, his faithful love, and not an expression of his anger, is confirmed by the very next verse, verse 15. God says, But my loving kindness will not be turned aside from him, as I turned it aside from with Saul, whom I turned aside from being before you. Something truly wonderful is being said here. God will be like a father to David's descendants in the sense that they will inherit a promise of unconditional love. God will always love them. God will always accept them. God will always forgive them. He will never reject them. That's astonishing. It doesn't mean that bad behavior is going to be tolerated. No, God will correct wrongdoing as an expression of his love, using human beings to inflict pain, but as an expression of his love, not of his wrath. In order that, as an outcome of the discipline, the king may turn from evil and learn to do what's right. And this is an extraordinary promise. It's a saving promise. Actually, it's a promise um, that, that will change the world. Because in terms of the history of the world, God's promise to David is the turning of a massive corner. Let's go right back to the start. Just after, just after the fall, Genesis 3, when sin had entered the world, God spoke of a son of Eve, of a seed of Eve, who would defeat the seed of Satan. Just a few chapters later, in the calling of Abraham, God speaks of blessing the nations through him and his seed. From Abraham comes Isaac, who is the father of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them, the prophecy, was that um, the kingship belonged eternally, actually to the fourth son, to Judah. Now, from the tribe of Judah comes King David. And the kingship will, within Judah, the kingship will eternally belong to his line. That this is a saving kingship is obvious because he's, he's God's anointed king. He's his Messiah king. He will do what God wants, God will make sure that he does what he wants. Therefore, in Old Testament terms, the kingdom of the Messiah is the kingdom of God because the Lord reigns through his Messiah King, who is his servant, that the rest of the Old Testament will now focus on how God keeps this promise, especially at times when it seems that God has forgotten his promise. And uh, as, as we heard this morning, the New Testament opens with the good news Jesus is God keeping his promise. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the town of David, of the line of David. He's the son of David. He is God's king, the Messiah, the Christ. And he is God's son. Actually, fully, perfectly, eternally, God's son with us. Come down from heaven. God with us. Th- therefore, God's promise to david is wonderful because it is actually a promise to save the world it is a promise never to abandon the world never to forsake the world to always be saving and it is a promise about how he will save the world through his king and all those who put their trust and faith in god's king enter god's kingdom which is the place of salvation god's protection god's provision God's presence and the promise is therefore utterly relevant to us who as Christians we have put our faith in God's king in Jesus the Messiah and it's relevant because the nature of this promise reflects the nature of God's covenant with us that it's a promise of unconditional belonging for we too in Christ are sons of the most high. We, we are free. We're free. To be sure, it's very important that we turn away from wrongdoing, and it's very important that we learn to do things Christ's way. But with such an extraordinary promise of unconditional belonging from God, we are, to use Paul's words, more than conquerors. There's nothing that we can do that will make God love us less. Nothing can take God's love away from us. And that changes everything. We're free. We're the inheritors of God's promise to David because all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. So that's the significance of what God is doing for David. Let's now flip the coin and consider the verse the significance of what David is not doing for God. For this too receives quite a bit of attention in our text. And we need to understand what's going on here. You see, our text opens today with David settled, resting, comfortable. What was he doing at that time? Well, actually, we know from the corresponding record in First Chronicles, we actually know quite a bit about what David is doing at this time. And what he's doing is he's organizing worship in the tabernacle tent. He's organizing priests and Levites, sacrifices and offerings. He's organizing musicians and singers. He's organizing thanksgivers and intercessors, gatekeepers and attendants. We also know that what David is doing, he's writing music and he's composing poems himself. David, the psalm writer. David, what he's doing is he's leading his people in worship and in prayer and in writing uh, uh, prayers, he is shaping the culture of his community as its head. And, and then suddenly, in, in all of this, suddenly uh, David becomes aware of a disparity between his home and God's home. He's living in luxury. The Ark of the Covenant is housed in a tent. David pitched the tent himself in chapter 6, verse 17, and the reason that he thought that a tent was the right form of accommodation for the ark was that for 40 years, while Israel journeyed through the wilderness, the ark was indeed housed in a large and elaborate tent called the tabernacle. However, in the ancient Near East, all gods and goddesses had temples. The greater the building, the greater the glory. So naturally, David wants to build a glorious temple for his God the, the, the law of Moses didn't either anticipate a temple, nor did it prohibit one. However, Moses did say that God would choose one place, one place where God would put His name there for his dwelling, Deuteronomy 12:5, the only place, place, where prescribed sacrifices could be made, the only place for feasts and festivals where all Israel would come together to worship. So David wants to build a temple. And when Nathan hears this, he is immediately supportive. Verses 4 and 5. Whatever you do, whatever you have in mind, go and do it. Go ahead, for the Lord is with you. I mean, after all, what could go wrong? David, you're the man. God gives you success in all you do. I mean, what could be better? I mean, for both of us, I get to have a temple to work in and, and you get to have a temple to show off your glory. I mean, the glory of God, the glory of your reign. Kind of the same thing anyway, isn't it? That's great. But there are hints, just hints of danger. Neither king nor prophet praise. And David's observation is a disparity of lifestyle between himself and God. David is in a position of strength, the Lord of weakness. David wants to do something for God. David is, if he's not very careful, just about to make the same mistake that Uzzah made in last week's text, the mistake of trying to save God. David is perhaps, just perhaps, getting a little bit full of himself. However, that very night, God turns up uninvited to Nathan's bedroom and gives him quite a revelation. This revelation addressed to David begins with a question. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? When God asks a question in the Bible, when Jesus asks a question in the Gospels, it is often a rebuke. It is usually a call to repentance. We should bear that in mind. And the question is rhetorical, for God answers it himself. And he makes, in answering his own question, God makes two points. Firstly, God doesn't depend upon human beings to fix his housing crisis. He's never asked anyone to build a house for him. Indeed, for 450 years, God lived in a tent quite happily. Where did this desire come from to fix a house for God? And so, therefore, secondly, actually, it's God who houses us. It is God who has planted Israel in a home of her own. God who saves her from her enemies. God who gives her shelter and protection. Indeed, uh, when Solomon, in the next generation, when Solomon does indeed build God a temple and he consecrates it, he prays about the fact that it's just a little bit silly to imagine that you can make a house for God given that God is bigger than the universe he made. However big we understand the universe to be, God is bigger. And... Now, too, also with particular relevance to David, it is God who has lifted David up, taking him from being a shepherd boy out in the back blocks and made him ruler over Israel, over God's people. So then, in fact, it is not God's will that David should build the temple. That privilege is denied David. Verse 13, it is David's son... Who will build a house for God? He will build the temple. The news is conveyed to David in the form of a gentle rebuke, but that leads into God's extraordinary promise to David. And in response to these remarkable revelations, David returns to prayer. Verse 18 He's back praying. David goes into the tabernacle tent. He sits on the ground in prayer, in the presence of the Lord, in front of the ark of the Lord. This is classic David. This is David at his finest. This is David contrite, humble, seeking to be with God, not caring about what others think. When God asks a question the correct response is usually repentance. And David does repent. In the full sense of that word, he repents in the sense of immediately and joyfully changing his mind so that it is in line with God's mind. He repents of his plan to build the temple. In repenting, David shifts his thoughts and his words away from what he can do for God back onto what God Has done for him. And David uses God's own words to him as the basis of his prayer, telling God what God has just told him. And by the way, that's a very good place to start. In fact, it's usually the best place to start when it comes to prayer if you're not sure how to pray. Um, If you're not sure how to pray, uh, read the Bible and then tell God what He's told you. That's a good place to start when it comes to prayer. It's what David is doing here. He he then rehearses before God how it is that he's been saved. God's staggering grace and mighty works for his people, the nation of Israel, but also for him too personally. And that's a great thing to do when you're praying as well. Talk to God about what he's done for us. Talk to God about what he's done for you. And David offers it all up as praise and thanksgiving. And the prayer turns a corner at verse 25. Um, From verse 25 to the end of the prayer, David is basically saying, God, please now do what you've told me that you will do. David tells us as we listen in that there's... There's no way in a 100 billion years that David ever would have found the courage to ask God to make his throne eternally secure down through all generations. I mean, that would have been impossibly, preposterously, outrageously presumptuous thing to do. David would never have asked for such a thing. And yet, even though David didn't ask, God gives it to him anyway. However, given that God has now revealed this to be his will to establish David's throne forever, David now can find the courage to ask for that. And in asking for just that, David is surrendering his will to God's will. This is your will. Please do it on earth as it is in heaven. David is surrendering control. And David is returning to a place of dependence. It, it, it takes... It takes courage to surrender control. It takes courage to be in a place of dependence. Um, Recently, I was uh, reading uh, Kanishka Raphael's testimony online. Uh, Many of you may know Kanishka personally. Um, Kanishka married uh, Joe and I and he was, uh, for many years, the the rector of St. Matt's Shenton Park. He's now uh, in Sydney as the dean of their cathedral. Um, But Kanishka was raised a Buddhist. And um, when he started going to university, although he'd been raised culturally a Buddhist, when he started going to university, he thought about these things, and uh, uh, you know, as a thinking kind of guy, he decided to become a practicing Buddhist, and so he s- moved from cultural Buddhism to practicing, practicing, observing Buddhist. And he had lots of friends, of course, um, and one of, some of his friends were Christian, and he asked one of his Christian friends what it meant for him to be a Christian. And his friend replied, being a Christian means I've lost control of my life to Jesus Christ. And Kanishka, having been raised as a Buddhist and at that time a practicing Buddhist, he, he, he found his friend's answer profoundly confronting. Because as a Buddhist, his whole life was about being in control. Being in control of his Emotional responses, being in control of his life. (laughs) Um, Indeed, for many, our whole lives are about being in control. Um, We sell everything from deodorant to ice cream on the basis that it will put you in control. Here is a man who'd surrendered control. And Jesus himself, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Well, David would continue to struggle with his desire to build. And the desire was affirmed in one place in the Bible. We're told that David did well to have this desire in his heart. But he never could act on it he was a frustrated builder in fact actually as we read we find he spent a lot of time and energy carefully working out the plans gathering all the materials so that all his son needed to do after he'd gone all his son needed to do was to follow the instructions and build it with an allen key you can just tell that david was itching to do it himself but god said no Why? The text doesn't tell us, but I think we can speculate. And in this particular instance, uh, some people think that David's zeal to build the the temple would have trampled on people. Uh, The building would have become the main focus I mean, you know, consider David's love for the Lord. It would have had to have been a bigger and more glorious temple than any other, and David probably would have turned into a tyrant in his desire to glorify God. Probably would have required increases in taxation, forced labor, and the building would have dominated the town council agenda and the cityscape for years. And as the temple perhaps began to look more and more like other ancient Near Eastern temples, David would probably have begun to look more and more like other ancient Near Eastern kings. The building may have glorified God, but really it would have glorified David. I mean, even today we speak about Solomon's temple or Herod's temple when we consider uh, the archaeological ruins um, in Jerusalem today that the temple would have glorified David. What did God want David to be doing? God wanted him to be shaping the kingdom in other ways, declaring the reign of the Lord, living the reign of the Lord, leading in worship and in prayers, establishing justice and mercy. We are really, really blessed that God stopped David's building program. David. David the king. David the man of prayer. David the musician. David the frustrated builder. There is a time and a place for building programs. And the leadership of this church has prayed over years, and we believe that now is the time for building a toilet. <laughs> I'm not a frustrated builder. I have no such ambitions. But I am, and I make this confession with embarrassment, I am a frustrated academic. This will be obvious to any of you who have known me for any length of time. I do indeed long to write papers and books and have them published and i love the idea of being a one of those sought after speakers at christian conferences every time i get an invitation to a christian conference there's some nasty part of my ego that responds with why didn't they ask me to speak i mean obviously i'll do do it all for the glory of god but really it's about me isn't it it's it's about my desire for the acceptance and recognition of those whom i admire all of this will be obvious to you who have in previous years graciously put up with me preaching from my own translations which is a pompous thing to do i did write a book once but i couldn't get it published And in 2012, I enrolled at Trinity in order to work towards a PhD in theology, but within months, I had to abandon that plan. God's answer was no. I I guess this is the take-home point. Sometimes it's what we don't do for God that's incredibly important. Sometimes a really significant thing in our lives will be what we didn't do. What God wants to do through you is infinitely more important than what you want to do for God, unless, of course, you've surrendered your will to his. And sometimes, perhaps even always, when God places a desire in our heart but then says no to that desire, it's because his no is part of his yes for something infinitely better. The Lord be with you.